Thank you, Melinda, for leading us in prayer this morning. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to those of you who are with us here in person and those of you who may be joining us online from wherever you're located as well. We're glad that you've tuned in. Um, at this time, if you're here with us in person and you've got a kiddo who is third grade and under that's in the service with us and you'd like them to go down the hall for their class while we open the scriptures for our sermon, they'll be dismissed at this time. You can send them to Miss Allison in the back of the room in the Blue Redeemer Kids shirt. Uh, she'll take them down the hall for their lesson uh, while we open the scriptures to the book of Matthew for our sermon. If you're a guest with us today, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we're glad that you've joined us today for our service. Uh, when you came in, you may have found a card that looks a lot like this sitting uh, in a seat nearby you. Uh, on one side of that card is a place for some information about yourself so we could send you some information about us. On the other side of that card is a place for prayer requests. If there are things that we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. If you fill out one of these cards, there's a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there. And we'd love to connect with you or pray with you. If you're online or if you're here in person this morning, you'd want to use a virtual card. There's one on the homepage of our website. You can fill out the exact same information, right, at RedeemerRC.com. And so we invite you to use that as well. If you've got a Bible with you, we're in Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Matthew chapter 26, and we'll read verses 47 through 57 today as a text from which our sermon will come. Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 57. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together, and you can follow along there. Matthew writes, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. This is God's word. We've been following Jesus along this way of grief, the Via Dolorosa, considering the prediction of his death, uh, looking at here now this morning his arrest in Matthew chapter 26. You know, it's very interesting. This Palm Sunday is a time historically in which the church has indeed celebrated the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, riding there on the colt as he enters. And there Crowds are gathered waving palm branches, this messianic symbol of the one who has come. 
celebrating Jesus. On Palm Sunday, the crowds are enthralled with Jesus. But by that Thursday evening, they're enraged with Jesus because the same crowds are now being sent and dispatched by the chief priests and the elders now to arrest Jesus. And they are eventually the crowds who in Matthew chapter 27, whenever the, the Pilate says, I can give you one of two people, I can give you a convicted criminal named Barabbas, or I can release to you Jesus. And they say, we want Barabbas. And Pilate says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And the crowds now are crying out, crucify him. So they go from being enthralled with Jesus to enraged with Jesus to crying out for Jesus' crucifixion, all in the span of five days. So this morning, though, we find ourselves here in the text in Matthew 26, looking at Jesus' arrest and considering what is it that we learn about Jesus from the account in Matthew's gospel of whenever he is taken into custody. I want to submit to you this morning, church, that we learn something of Jesus' kindness, of his values, and of his identity. And I want us this morning to stand back and just look at Jesus from this passage today. There may not be a whole lot of practical takeaways, applications, three steps, things to do. But what I want us to do is we enter into this holy week to be enamored with and in awe of Jesus. So the first thing I think that we see in this particular passage in Jesus' arrest as he travels on the way of suffering and grief, is his kindness. And I would just call us this morning, church, to marvel at the kindness of Jesus. I want you to notice the way in which Jesus responds to Judas. Earlier in Matthew 26, we see Judas going to strike a deal with the chief priest in a back room, smoke-filled, right? To receive 30 pieces of silver for delivering Jesus over to them. Then at the final Passover meal in Matthew 26 that Jesus would share with his disciples, Jesus predicts that one of those 12 who were in the room sharing the meal with him would be the one who would betray him. And all the disciples are filled, we're told in the text, filled with sorrow. And they begin to question, is it me? They look in the mirror, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then Jesus goes on to say these words, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas asks Jesus this very penetrating question. He says, is it I, Rabbi? Is it I? And Jesus says to him in Matthew 26, you have said so. Now, in our text, when Judas greets Jesus there, as they come, as Jesus and the other 11 come out of the garden, here comes Judas along with the representatives from the chief priests and the elders to arrest Jesus. He had struck a deal, he had shared a meal, and now he was betraying and delivering over the one whom he had followed for the last three years, believing that he was indeed the Messiah. And in our text, whenever Judas greets Jesus, when he comes up to Jesus, he says these two words, greetings, rabbi. Now, I want you to understand something. In our English language, the word greetings is usually attached to the word salutations, okay? Um, and it's often just a synonym, a very formal synonym for the word hello. How you doing, right? What's up? Okay, that's typically the way that our English uh, uh, handles that word greeting. However, in the Greek, the term is in indicative of a state of happiness or well-being. 
It was very, very much likened to the Hebrew term shalom, and it can be translated to rejoice or to be glad. And so whenever Judas approaches Jesus, he essentially is saying, rejoice, Rabbi, be glad, be well, peace be with you. And then he uses the term rabbi, which was a term that was used of honored teachers, great ones who knew and taught the Hebrew scriptures. And then he greets Jesus with a kiss, that holy kiss the Bible talks about that we don't practice as much these days, particularly in the era of a pandemic and in Western culture. Okay, our culture is not accustomed to greeting one another with a kiss, but many other cultures are. And we don't know exactly where this kiss was planted. It was on his cheek or on his forehead or even perhaps most intimately on his lips. But it was the tender kiss of a dear friend as they embraced. Now, we know from reading the passage before this why Judas had come. The deal that had already been struck. The fact that Jesus knew who it was that would betray him. And yet in verse 50, whenever Jesus speaks now to Judas... And he resigns himself, as he had said earlier in Matthew's gospel, to what had been written of him. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's resigning himself over to that, submitting himself to the fulfillment of prophecy. And yet when Jesus speaks to Judas, he refers to Judas with a term that blows our mind. Listen, (laughs) because Jesus doesn't say to Judas, the text doesn't read, Jesus said to him, nincompoop, right? Or Jesus said to him, you twit, right? Or Jesus said to him, you scoundrel, you scumbag, you spawn of Satan himself. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus looks at Judas in the eye and he says, friend, friend, companion, partner in ministry over these last three years. Also, Jesus, when Judas leans in for the kiss, Jesus, knowing what he knew in that moment, he doesn't turn aside. He doesn't pull back, but allows Judas to move in and plant one on him. And the reason that I say is the kindness of Jesus. is because I don't know how else to describe this other than a supernatural kindness being exhibited by Jesus toward the one who would betray him and deliver him over to those who wanted to see him die. It's kindness, church. Now, the word kindness, it literally means to be benevolent, to be generous, to be compassionate toward other people. And true biblical kindness, listen, I want you to consider what Jesus is demonstrating towards Judas here. True biblical kindness is not random. We speak of all kinds of random acts of kindness in our day. Like I'm going to pay it forward at the grocery store, right? And so I'll pay it backwards. Like I'll pay for the person's groceries behind me. Or I'll pay it backwards and I'll pay for the person behind me in the drive-thru. I do all these random acts of kindness. But true biblical kindness is not random. It is sacrificial. See, biblical kindness is not randomly paying for someone's meal at a restaurant or putting gas in someone's tank who ran out on the side of the highway out of your excess, but it's leveraging your time, talents, and resources to meet the needs of people around you to such a degree that it begins to cut into you. 
Clement, a uh, 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 second century uh, church leader, said it this way. And he spoke of kindness. He says, kindness is exhibited in one who impoverishes themselves out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. That's kindness. Kindness is not sappy Hallmark sentimentality. Okay? It's not on a card or on a movie channel. And kindness is also not self-absorbed manipulation. Right? It's not being kind to others so that we can get something from them. And it's not being moved to tears whenever we watch Sarah McLaughlin sing in the arms of an angel while the SPCA commercial comes on. Okay, that's, that's not biblical kindness. But it is sacrificial, moved deeply to treat others with compassion. And the reason that I say earlier, marvel at the kindness of Jesus, I say it for a very specific reason. The word, listen, the word marvel was not originally the name of a comic book series or production company, okay? Contrary to popular belief. Although with the superhuman powers of the characters in those stories, it's a very fitting name because marvel means literally to be in awe, to be astonished, to be bowled over, to be amazed by. And what is so amazing and astonishing and awe-inspiring in this text is that the kindness is the kindness of Jesus because it's not how I would respond in that moment and it's not how you would respond in that moment if you looked in the mirror and were really honest with yourself. But knowing Knowing what Judas was doing, Jesus receives the kiss and says, Companion, partner in ministry, friend. That's how he addresses him. I would choose other names, other adjectives, other words in that moment, but not Jesus. He is filled with kindness, even for the one who would betray him. For 30 pieces of silver. Second thing in this text that I want you to see about Jesus this morning. Not only do we ought to marvel at his kindness. Be amazed by it. But be formed by his values. Be formed by his values. In verse 51. We're told that one of those who were there with Jesus. One of the twelve. He draws his sword. And he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And, and in response, Jesus could not be any clearer in his rebuke of this man. He tells him, put away your sword. Put it back in the sheath. For all who take the sword, he says, will perish by the sword. Essentially what Jesus is saying to this disciple of his who draws the sword. This, in Matthew's gospel, he's unnamed. We know from other gospel accounts who it was. But for a moment... I'm just going to say this unnamed disciple. To believe Matthew has a very intentional purpose behind not naming the man at this point. But Jesus essentially is saying, I don't need you to defend me. If I wanted or needed defense, he says, I could, it's what he says in the text, I could appeal to my father and he would send 12 legions of angels at once, right? Immediately. Twelve legions of angels. A Roman legion was at least 5,300 Roman soldiers. 
you do the math real quick, that's about 63,000 and change. 12 legions of angels, see over 60,000 angels at the Father's command that would be dispatched if Jesus were to raise his hand. He says, I don't need you to defend me. I love the way the church father Jerome said it. He said, who needs defense from the 12 apostles on earth when one has 12 legions of angels in heaven? Another commentator said, Jesus, and the reason Jesus rebukes him, and the commentator says this, he says, Jesus' mission is the, is the center of his rebuke. His mission is the cross. And he says, essentially, Peter, stop resisting the cross of Christ. Put down your sword. If the message is the cross, he says, the means ought never be the sword. If the message is the cross, the means ought never be the sword. And the reason I say be formed by the values of Jesus is because one of the things that is demonstrated in Jesus' arrest is that Jesus' kingdom is truly not of this world. In John's gospel, in John 18, 36, Jesus makes this statement to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. It doesn't receive its authority from this world. It doesn't have its culmination in this world. My kingdom transcends this world, and as such, the values are not the same as the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus said, my kingdom is not ordered around the values of this world. I'm not seeking the same things as the kingdoms of this world. Which is one of the reasons I believe it's with intention. With intention that Peter's name is not mentioned in Matthew's gospel. Because I believe that what Matthew is trying to do in the text is help every generation of Christians who would come after see that they are prone to the same temptation that Peter was to take the sword up for the cause of Christ. Listen, the Bible is very clear that God gives the authority to governments to take the sword for just wars, to defend their peoples. But listen, that sword is never to be drawn by the church to advance the cause of Christ. That's why I say be formed by the values of Jesus and his kingdom. See, this temptation to take the sword didn't die in the Crusades in the Middle Ages. But it has continued even to this very day. See, what took place on January 6, 2021 ought to be shocking, disturbing, and strike grief in the heart of every single Christian. And, because, and, and the reason is not, what was most disturbing about it was not was not, let me be very clear, the interruption of the democratic process or the peaceful transfer of power. But what was most disturbing were some of the images that came out of that day. Images of Jesus on a painting of Jesus with a MAGA hat on his head as those, people, as those individuals stormed the Capitol. What was most disturbing were the images of the gallows and the cross Together and signs erected saying Jesus saves in the background of the gallows. That's what was most disturbing. What is most disturbing 
is the people who streamed themselves storming the capital, entering its hall, saying they were storming it in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. And so when Matthew leaves out Peter's name, he's saying this, this tendency to draw the sword to advance the cause of Christ did not die in the garden. And it did not die in the Middle Ages. And it has not yet died in the modern world. We're to be formed by the values of Jesus and his kingdom. Not the values of worldly and earthly kingdoms. The third thing that I think we learn from this text this morning is this. Is that we not only ought to marvel at the kindness of Jesus, that we ought to be formed by the values of Jesus, but we also must recognize the identity of Jesus. Older theologians would have said it this way, that Jesus is the true Israel. The true and better Israel. And in the text, in two places, Jesus refers to the fulfillment of the scriptures. Peter draws his sword, lops off the ear, which by the way, back up for a moment, I believe one of the reasons it's so important not to draw the sword to advance the cause of Christ, because I don't know that it was necessarily a coincidence that the high priest's servant ear is what gets lopped off in the text. Because I will say this, every time the church has drawn the sword in human history, it's created a deafening silence for the advancement of the gospel into those places and for those peoples. That's true this morning. But recognize the identity of Jesus. Jesus talks about the fulfillment of the scriptures twice. Twice, he says, how shall the scriptures be fulfilled now the way when we, when the when, when we speak of the fulfillment of scripture we could speak of the fulfillment of scripture and from multiple angles we could speak of the predictions that are made in the old testament by the prophets that would come true and no one and none other than jesus christ you read isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant that would come and listen there <laughs> Line by line, you can see the fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus in these predictions. You can see fulfillment of promises that came from the Old Testament, which all find their yes and amen in who? In Christ. And you can see fulfillment of patterns that emerge in the Old Testament of the things that happen to Israel or things that happen to individuals in the Old Testament that you see carried forward and woven into the life of Christ himself. And I believe when Jesus speaks of the fulfillment of scriptures in Matthew chapter 26, he has in mind at least these two categories of predictions that were made and patterns that are fulfilled in his life. What is it? There's at least one predict, prediction, I believe, that comes to its fulfillment here in Matthew chapter 26. And that's of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Where the prophet says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So the sword is turned upon the shepherd of God. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. 
Strike the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. The sword's coming to fall upon the anointed shepherd of God. And those who were with him are scattered to the four winds. And that's exactly what you see at the end of the passage that we read this morning. Whenever Jesus is arrested, how many of the disciples are following along with him to jail? Zero. Zero fulfillment of a prediction but there's also a fulfillment of a pattern here church psalm 88 in the old testament is perhaps hmm, the darkest most despairing of all the psalms and it begins this way O lord god of my salvation i cry out day and night before you let my prayer come before you incline your ear to my cry for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to sheol the place of the dead i am counted among those who go down to the pit i am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavily upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. It is not difficult to see, church, how what is recorded in verses 1 to 7 was a pattern that came to fruition in the garden as Jesus prays, crying out to his Father soul full of troubles, asking for God to incline his ear, one who's lost his strength, like the slain in the grave, who's about to experience the wrath of God as he is there in the garden crying out in prayer. It's not difficult to see that. But then in verses 8 and 18 of Psalm 88, The psalmist says these words, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. You have caused my beloved, verse 18, and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The shepherd was being struck and the sheep were scattering. The companions and friends of Jesus that had followed him, one betrayed, the other 11 abandoned and ran. See, when when these patterns emerge in the Old Testament, right? You see, the, we're most familiar with the predictions. We're most familiar with the promises. But there are so many patterns woven into the stories of the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 12, whenever Jeremiah is speaking about the exile of Israel and how God is dealing with Israel in her, in her sin, right? This is on account of her sin. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 12, 7. God says, I have forsaken my house. I've abandoned my heritage. I've given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. As God turned over Israel to the hands of the nations surrounding her, to the hands of her enemies. So also that pattern of the way that God deals with sin. He's not dealing with Jesus because of his sin. Who's, what sin is he dealing with Jesus about? My sin, your sin, our sin. But in so doing, he turns his beloved over into the hands of his enemies. As he's led 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 away to trial and ultimately to crucifixion. 
Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 17. We find David, as he goes out to meet those who had come against him, and he says to them, he says, If you have come to me in friendship to help me, my heart will be joined to you. But if you betray me to my adversaries, although there is no wrong in my hands. Now listen. David can be speaking with regards to a particular situation that there may have been no wrong in his hands as he dealt with those individuals. But he cannot say of the entirety of his life there is no wrong in his hands. But there is one who could. His name was Jesus and he was betrayed to his adversaries though there was no wrong in his hands at all. These are patterns that emerge That ultimately, as you find that thread that weaves its way through the Old Testament to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the fulfillment of being abandoned by his companions. companions. He is the fulfillment. He is the shepherd who was struck and the sheep were scattered. This is Jesus. And listen, I want you to know something this morning, church. That because Jesus knows what it is to have his companions shun him. To have his beloved and his friend shun him. To be struck with the wrath of God and to have his his sheep scatter. He knows what it is to be utterly and completely alone. Humanly speaking. So for those of you who may struggle with loneliness, I want you to know that Jesus is able to sympathize with you in your sorrow, that Jesus is able to sympathize with you in your sadness, that Jesus is able to sympathize, he's able to enter into that reality because he experienced it himself as he walked the road of grief, the way of sorrow. And despite having been abandoned, despite experiencing this utter loneliness without any human companion around him, he still, he still embraces Judas as a friend. Receives the kiss, demonstrates kindness. He still says, Peter, put away the sword. This is not how we do things. We want the world to hear the message of the cross, and it cannot go forth by the sword. The great king of all the universe being isolated and left to himself at the hands of his enemies. See, church, we are more like the great crowd than we care to admit. There are times in which we are enthralled with Jesus. There are times in which we are enraged by him. And there are times, like Judas, where we might betray him. Or like Peter, where we might abandon him. I'll bring you back to where we began this morning to say this. 
I find great comfort in knowing. And I hope your heart finds great comfort in knowing. That whether you are in the room this morning. And feeling the weight of conviction of abandoning your Lord. Or feeling the weight of conviction because you have betrayed your Lord. I want you to know that the kindness of Jesus is available to you today. And if you're in the room this morning experiencing loneliness, isolation, sorrow, sadness, feeling like there is no one on this earth who understands the road that you are walking. First of all, that's not true. But second of all, there is one who is able to meet you in the midst of it. Because he himself experienced it. So marvel at his kindness, church. Recognize his identity. Be formed by his values. As we move into this holy week. Celebrating the person of Jesus. Stand in awe of him. Stand in awe. Father, this morning, would you overwhelm our hearts? Would you flood them with the, 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 the truth of who your Son is? May you allow us not to settle for caricatures of him. That have been produced by Western media, that have been produced by Western governments, that have been produced by people who do not understand his mission. But may we be amazed this holy week by his kindness, by his identity. May we stand in awe this holy week of the, of the fact that even for us who have abandoned and betrayed, He kisses us with His kindness, welcomes us as His friends. And may that bring comfort to our hearts. No matter how Badly we have failed to know that grace is available and that Jesus stands at the ready to dispense it. May we be formed by the values of your kingdom, Father. And not mix those with the values of the kingdoms of this world. So that the message of the cross might be clear and compelling in our culture. Help us now as we sing to marvel. To marvel at your son and your mercy, your grace, and your kindness. We ask it in Jesus' name.